So this is our last time in Mark's Gospel. And I think today's passage tells you something extraordinary. Christianity stands or falls on an impossible event. An event that is so unlikely to have happened, you would be a fool to believe it. Unless, of course, it did happen. You see, over the centuries, the Roman authorities crucified literally thousands of people. Not a single one of them ever survived the experience. And so if Christianity was built on the argument that Jesus of Nazareth had survived crucifixion, that would be remarkable enough. But that isn't what it's built on. What Christianity is built on is that along with every other victim of crucifixion, Jesus of Nazareth died. But on the third day, he physically rose from the dead. And that is not just unlikely, that is impossible. Impossible unless it happened. And in this passage, Mark sets out for you the evidence that it did happen. But if you look at it, he does something else as well. He tells you that evidence is not enough. It's not enough just to know the facts. You can know all of the facts of Jesus' resurrection in your head. You can know all of the facts of Christianity in your head and it not change your life. You need something more than the facts. You see, one of the glaring differences between Mark's account and the other Gospels is that Mark doesn't give us any post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. He ends at verse 8 with the women leaving the tomb in fear and not speaking to anybody. And you think, is that it? What kind of a way is that to end the Gospels? Isn't there anything else to say? Listen, if that is how you respond, you are not alone. Okay, because beginning sometime around the second century, scribes, the people who were copying Mark's gospel, clearly decided this is, this is a, not an appropriate way to end. We've got to add some other bits. And so maybe in your Bible you'll find after verse 8 these other verses that have been added. But give a more satisfactory ending. But it's clear textually that that is... But Mark did not write this. He chose to end the gospel at verse 8. Why? Why leave it hanging like that? And the answer is, is that the resurrection of Christ is not the end. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is just the beginning. But to experience all that comes after, you need more than just the fact. First point then, Jesus the risen one. So it's Friday of Passover, and Jesus has just died on the cross. But Mark tells us, verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance. And he gives us three of their names, a whole group of them, he gives us three of their names, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Jesus, and Salome. In fact, including here in verse 40 and in verse 47 and in chapter 6, verse 1, he gives us their names two times. That is not Mark being a boring 
repetitive preacher. It's intentional on his part. In their day, you needed two or three witnesses for something to be grounded in truth, to confirm something as being true. So this is Mark giving you that. Their names three times. Three saw Jesus die, two saw where he was buried, and all three returned to the tomb on Sunday morning. So these are the witnesses. But if Jesus did die in front of their eyes, which he did, that event started a clock ticking. I know they didn't have clocks back then, I think it's just an expression. Maybe, maybe the sun dial, the arm of the sun dial, the sands of time begin to think, but whatever, it started something. Because the Romans did not just see crucifixion as a punishment for the criminal. They saw crucifixion as a deterrent to discourage other people from also breaking the law. The Romans would typically leave the bodies of the crucified on their crosses until they rotted, until they disintegrated. But for, of course, of course, for Jews, that was abhorrent because even criminals, even your enemies, deserve a decent burial, and the law said that had to be done before sundown. And if Jesus died shortly after 3 p.m., and the sun would set sometime around 6.30 p.m., the clock's ticking. Someone needs to act. But who's going to act? Who's going to take responsibility for the body of a man rejected by the Jews and crucified by the Romans? Verses 42 and 43. And when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And of course, verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And Pilate knows his stuff, doesn't he? Pilate knows that victims of crucifixion would typically take hours, even days, to die. So, he insists on checking that Jesus really is dead. Because the last thing he wants, Jerusalem filled with pilgrims, packed at Passover. The last thing he wants is somebody who has been taken down from the cross to earth, who he is supposed to have executed. And him crucified for being the leader of a rebellion against Rome. So, verse 44 and 45, summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Just see how Mark is laying out the evidence. The women watch Jesus die. Pilate, the Roman governor, wants to make sure he really was dead. And the centurion, a man who has done this countless times, confirms it. Drive it home, while in verse 43 Mark uses the word soma for the body of Jesus, in verse 45 he switches to the word patoma, which means corpse. In other words, Mark wants you to be really clear, along with every other victim of crucifixion, Jesus died. And taking his body, the corpse, down from the Verse 46, Jesus wrapped him in a linen shroud. So Joseph wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. It's very likely his own tomb, his family tomb. 
that had been cut out of the rock. And two of the women, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was made. Which means that when they return on Sunday morning and find the tomb empty, it is not that they've gone to the wrong tomb. They know where to come. And come they do. Chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they went to, stating the obvious, they went to anoint him for burial. So do you remember what happened back in chapter 14? At Bethany, a few days previously, Jesus is eating dinner, and this woman comes in and anoints him with perfume. Do you know what Jesus said? Verse 8, chapter 14, verse 8. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Why do it beforehand? Why anoint somebody beforehand for their burial? Because afterhand, afterwards, when the women come to anoint his body, there's no body to anoint. Not a dead one, anyway. Instead, they come and they find the stone rolled away from the entrance. A stone mark points out, verse 4, that was very large. Now, apart from coming to anoint Jesus' body, why have they come? What's motivating them? They've come to try and bring some closure, haven't they? They've just watched this horrific death, and they want to try and bring some dignity to his death. But rather than closure, they come and they find the tomb wide open and going into it, they find it empty. Except it's not empty. There's a young man dressed in white sat there on the right-hand side, Mark tells us. It's a little eyewitness detail. But that description, the young man dressed in white tells me he's an angel. And he tells them, verse 6, do not be alarmed. Now, when an angel tells you that, okay, you know, humanly speaking, okay, you've got something to be alarmed about, don't you? you know, if an angel ever says to you, appears to you and says, do not fear, you know that you have got reason to be afraid, humanly speaking. And he adds, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Okay, so he knows why they're there. They thought that this was the He's telling them, listen, it is just the beginning. Because he describes Jesus in two ways. He was crucified. Literally, he calls Jesus the crucified one. And he uses the perfect tense, the one who was and is and continues to be the crucified one. In other words, Jesus' crucifixion is not some horrible part of his past to be forgotten. Jesus was and always will be the crucified one. But he could be that and dead, couldn't he? He could be the crucified one and be the dead crucified one, but he's not. Because secondly, the young man says, he has risen. The one you saw die, the one you saw buried, the crucified one is the risen one. Which is why he says, verse 6, he is not here. Because it's corpses you find in tombs, not Christ. 
And that tells you something, doesn't it? It tells you that this is not some kind of a spiritual resurrection, okay, which is what some people might try and persuade you of. But somehow Jesus rose spiritually in the, in the hearts of the first disciples, but his bones are slowly turning to dust somewhere in the Middle East. No, the angel says, no, he's not here. He has been raised. His body has been physically resurrected. Okay. What do you think of that? Because uh, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, maybe you hear that didn't come This is a 21st century Martin. Angels? Bodies being raised from the dead? Come on, this is make-believe. If, if that is what you think, you've got a problem here. And the reason you've got a problem is because in Luke's account, when the women report all of this to the disciples, the disciples' response was exactly the same as yours. It tells us these words seem to them an idle tale, make believe. And they did not believe them. Okay, so it's not as if you can engage in what C.S. Lewis called chronological snivel and think that just because they lived 2,000 years ago, they all went round believing that dead bodies could live. They like you, they know that when you die, you die. And if they all knew that, if Mark is just making this up, why have the women as the witnesses? Why have the women as the people who watch Jesus die, see where he is buried, go to the tomb, find the stone rolled away, find the tomb empty, and an angel inside. Why have the women been those witnesses? When everybody knows that a women's back then please, everybody knows that a women's testimony was worthless. Why have women as your witnesses when as one rabbi said, Happy is he whose children are male, but alas for him whose children are female. Again, I've got four of them. Okay, what does that say about me? Alas for Martin. Okay, if Mark is making this up, just cut the women out. Why would you have why would you write the women? Just cut them out. And instead write in Joseph of Arimathea as the chief witness. Because he really would carry. I mean, he's respected, he's a leader, and he's a man. But Mark doesn't cut him out. And he doesn't write Joseph in as the chief witness. And the reason he doesn't, the only reason he would have the women as the witnesses, is that they were. They really did see Jesus die. They really did see where he was laid. They really did go to the tomb. They really did find the stone rolled away. They really did find the tomb empty and an angel sitting inside on the right-hand side. And that might be socially embarrassing. But listen, something can be socially embarrassing and still be true. But it's truth with implications. First, it's got implications for Jesus. You see, running through this whole gospel has been the question, who is this man? I mean, who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? And we've heard what the demons think. We've heard what Peter thinks. We've heard what a blind beggar thinks. We've heard what the high priest and Pilate think. We've even now heard what the centurion guarding the cross thinks. 
But now, in the resurrection, God gives his verdict. Because the resurrection of Christ is the vindication, the ultimate vindication, of who Jesus is. And if in chapter 1, at Jesus' baptism, we heard God the Father say, This is my beloved Son. And if when the high priest questions Jesus, asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And if the centurion said, this was the Son of God, by raising him from the dead, God is saying, yep, that is exactly who he is. This is my Son. Which is why Mark begins his Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, telling us that this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the resurrection says, that is who there's an implication for who Jesus is. Secondly, there's an implication for death. Because when the angel says, he is not here, he is saying that the grave is no resting place for the Son of God. But listen, neither will it be for those who trust him. Because Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning. As Paul writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Last Sunday night, as a uh, thank you for Sue, my wife, um, cooking for them every uh, Thursday evening for the, the students and young adults, paid for Sue and I got to go along as well, paid for Sue and I to go to a concert. Sunday evening and to have dinner out. It was um, incredibly special. Guys, thank you very much for that. And the concert was Handel's Messiah. And if you know Handel's Messiah, um, in fact, Odile was there as well. Um, if you know Handel's Messiah, one of the great moments is building to the climax is when the bass soloist sings out, and I shan't sing to you, sings out, the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be and as he sings it, the trumpeter sounds his trumpet. It is one of those transcendent moments. But the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised. Those aren't Handel's words, those are Paul's words. But when Christ returns, and the trumpet sounds, like him we will be raised. And so Paul can say, because of Jesus' resurrection, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sin? Where does that victory begin? It begins here. It begins as these women come to the tomb, find the stone rolled away, and the tomb inside empty. There's an implication for who Jesus is. There's an implication for death. But thirdly, there's an implication for Peter and for all of us who fail. Look what the angel says the women should do. Verse 7, Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Now these men, these disciples, are they're men who have abandoned Jesus and disowned him. Jesus does not disown them. They're still his. His disciples. If a wife single out Peter, his disciples and Peter. Why single out Peter? 
because Peter has singled himself out by his denials of Jesus. And so Jesus singles Peter out, but not for further disgrace. Jesus singles Peter out for grace, because Jesus knows that Peter is going to need special attention. He's going to need being spoken to personally. Jesus does not shoot the wounded. He restores them. And the angel tells the women to tell the disciples that Jesus is going before them to Galilee. Now, we know that from the other Gospels, Jesus appears to them first here in Jerusalem. They said, why mention Galilee? Because that's where these guys are from. Galilee's special to them. It's home. And it's where Jesus first called them. And they're waking up on this first Easter Sunday morning. They didn't know about the resurrection yet. And as they are waking up, what are they thinking? All of their dreams, all of their hopes, all of their aspirations for the future, they all lie shattered around them. With their heads, their heads are full of what-ifs and if-onlys. What if I'd behaved differently? If only I hadn't done that. Maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe you feel like you have singled yourself out. Maybe you feel like you have turned away. Maybe you feel like you have denied Jesus or let him down or sinned just once too often. Maybe you think there is no way back. But as Jesus says to them, he says to you, I have not given up on you. My plan and my purposes for you are on track. Let's get back to where it all started, and let's restore your first love. And the reason that's possible is the whole reason Jesus came, to give his life as a ransom for many. And the resurrection tells you that ransom has been paid, and God the Father has accepted it. And if you trust him, your debt, all that charge sheet that we looked at the other day, that could be charged against you, your debt, just like Peter's, is wiped clean. Time for a new start. You are his, and you always will be. Now, have you ever experienced, uh, or have you ever had that experience of becoming interested in something, and suddenly you start seeing it everywhere? Maybe you are... Um, Maybe you're thinking about buying a, a certain model of car, and you do all the background reading, you look up on the spec and all of that. And as you do, it seems like every other car is that car. You know, that's the experience. Or, or maybe you get interested in how advertisers are trying to manipulate you, and you see one thing. Oh, there's another example. And you see it. Oh, and cheese drive. And there's another car just like it. And you start seeing them everywhere. Well, as we've seen, one of the things that Mark's gospel is famous for is his sandwich. Okay, where he intercalates, starts off with one story, ends with it, but then he puts something else in between. And the reason he puts something else in between is to get you to compare at least two. And the danger is with Mark's sandwiches is that once you see one, you start seeing them everywhere. Despite that danger, I think Mark ends his gospel with one. And that would be a fitting way for Mark to end it. You see, Mark begins this final passage with the women standing at a distance. And he ends it with the women at the tomb. But in between, he gives us this account of Joseph going to Pilate. And he does it so that we make a comparison.
Second point then, Joseph the brave one. Jesus the risen one, Joseph the brave one. Look how Mark describes him. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now Matthew and John, they both call Joseph a disciple of Jesus. So when Mark says he's looking for the kingdom of God, he doesn't mean by that that Joseph is just a pious Jewish man who's got some hope that someday the Messiah will come. He means that at very least Joseph is sympathetic to Jesus' ministry, even if he has kept that quiet from his colleagues in the Sanhedrin. And Luke tells us that as regards the colleagues in the Sanhedrin, he did not agree with their decision to execute Jesus. Okay, but if he has kept his admiration and respect for Jesus in the shadows, if he has stayed quiet, he does so no longer. Mark tells us he took courage and went to Pilate. Think about that. Because that would have taken courage. Pilate has just executed Jesus on a charge of insurrection, of trying to foment, to lead a rebellion against Rome, and to risk being identified as at best sympathetic, as at worst involved in that plot, could prove very costly to Joseph. But it would also have taken courage to do that, knowing what his peers on the Sanhedrin Council thought about Jesus. Mark tells us, Joseph's respected. And when you're respected, that means you've got a reputation. You've got a reputation to lose. And if he comes out publicly for a man who everyone else thinks is a blasphemer and a fraud, he's going to lose that reputation. Think how they might try to dissuade Think how they might have tried to dissuade him from doing Joseph, come on, man. You don't want to do this. You don't want to find yourself on the wrong side of history. Joseph, why ruin your reputation for him? Joseph is willing to take that risk. He's willing to risk his future on Christ. You know what makes that all the more inspiring? He's doing it for a corpse. He's doing it for a dead body. Jesus is dead. Joseph doesn't know anything about the resurrection yet, because the resurrection hasn't happened yet. Yet, for the sake of Christ's dead body, he takes courage and risks. Think how even more courageous someone would be. Think what a difference it would make if someone like Joseph knew that Christ really had risen from the dead. Wouldn't that make a difference? Or would it? Because that is the contrast that Mark wants you to see. Third point then. The women, the fearful ones. Jesus the risen one. Joseph the brave one. The women, the fearful ones. Now ladies, you know, all of us, the contrast is not that Joseph has influence and the women have none, which is true. It's not that Joseph is male and they are female in a male-dominated world, which is also true. It is because the contrast he wants you to see is between Joseph's courage, even though he thinks Jesus is dead, and the fear of the women, 
even though they know he's risen. Look how Mark describes them. In verse 40 at the crucifixion, they were looking on from a distance. Who was the last person Mark described doing that? It was Peter. Peter following Jesus at a distance, right before his denials. And while on Sunday morning, while there is no sign of the male disciples, okay, they're still hiding away in fear, these women come to the tomb at some risk to themselves. Even so, Mark tells us they come anxious. Verse 3, who will roll the stone away for us? When what they discover is that they had no reason to worry. It had already been moved. I don't know about you, for me that is a reminder of how many of the things that we worry about actually never come to pass. But whereas Joseph took courage and finally nailed his colours publicly to the mast, when the women enter the tomb and see the angel, they were, verse 5, alarmed. And having been told Christ was risen, he tells us, verse 8, they fled from the tomb, the trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, but they were afraid. Full stop, end of the gospel. Right when we are expecting joy and triumph and boldness and proclamation, he's risen, we get fear and silence. What kind of memory is that? Now, we know that they don't stay silent for long. Okay? And we know that by the time Mark wrote this, the church has been boldly, including the women, boldly proclaiming Christ's resurrection for 30 years or more. So why end it like this? Because the facts of the resurrection alone, apologetics on their own, knowing it all in your head on its own, does not make you bold. It doesn't answer the fear. It doesn't answer the fear of either identifying with Jesus or fear generally in your life. Apologetics on their own won't do it. These women lived the apologetics. They lived the facts. But that didn't turn the fearful into the bold of the brain. And Mark is writing this to Christians who are now as socially disadvantaged as these women. And they're also facing a dilemma. Do I come out with Christ or not? Do I identify as a Christian or not? Do I take courage and speak out or not? Do I take courage and say, Jesus is risen, and he is my Lord, and I'm going to shape my life around him. Do I tell people or not? And Mark leaves the ending hand because it is up to them to write it. How am I going to respond to the resurrection? But it's also up to you to write it. You see, what the women needed, what actually transforms them, is what we all need, is a personal encounter with the risen Christ. It is to know, not just in your head, but with your whole heart, Christ is risen. And that changes everything. The last point then. You, the what? Jesus the risen one. Joseph the brave one. The women the fearful one. But you the what? What are you going to be? 
how will you respond, not just to the ending of this gospel, but to the whole of it? I mean, how do you answer the question, who is this man? What are you going to do with the crucified one who is the risen one? And do you know, not just intellectually, but not just apologetically, not just in your head, but in your heart, that he was crucified for you, and he has been raised for you, and then let that free you from fear, fear of identifying with him, but fear generally in your life, and change forever the way you think and speak and live. So as we finish, Lily's going to come up and play for us for a few minutes before we go into our last song. And as she does, I want to um, I want to suggest some areas of response, which I just want to take a few minutes as Lindy plays for you to think about. Maybe you're not yet a Christian, but having seen Christ in the Gospel, maybe you want to become one. I want to urge you, do that today. Okay, take a moment in your heart to call out to Tell him that you repent of your sin and you trust in what he has done for you. Ask him to save you and make you his, and he will. And then maybe come and tell me afterwards, tell a friend, whoever you can. Okay, maybe you would have called yourself a Christian, but now you're not quite so sure. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian family, maybe or the culture where you come from is heavily influenced by Christianity. You know it intellectually, but you also know that he does not have your heart. You know the facts, but you also know that the facts are not enough. You also call out to him. Ask him to come and change your heart and give you a heart of flesh to love him and treasure him and trust him. Or maybe you know that you are a Christian, and you know the facts, and like these women, you love Christ, and you are devoted to him. But like them, you're fearful. Maybe even fear controls you. Ask him to come and fill you with his spirit, that you might encounter again the crucified one and the risen one, and that that would give you the faith and the courage that you need. And for those of us who know that you are a Christian, and you know he is risen, and you fear his courage, how should you respond? By worshipping him, doing what we should always do, worship him. Tell him you love him, tell him he has your life, tell him you want him to use you out there in a world that is dark and needs to hear the message. Ask him to open your lips and be his ambassador. Let's pray.